Blog Talk Radio. So, we have our friends in Facebook land. We have our friends on the Vibe Radio Network. And as we said, we have Middle Ball of Rage right here. Yeah. He's not happy that Mr. Chris is in his seat. I apparently stole his seat. Shame on But, anyways, yeah, so I hope everybody's doing well. These last two weeks have just kind of flown by. Yeah, they have. <laughs> I don't even remember what happened, to be honest. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, exactly. No, no, no. I think, I think it was... We actually had a weekend roughly off. Roughly. 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 <laughs> but, I've been, you know, dealing with sinus stuff, so... Yeah, let's see. So last episode was on the third. So that was tours. We had tours. That kind of was it. And I said roughly off. Yeah. We didn't. Now we didn't get the tours. Yeah. We we gave the private tour for uh, our uh, our our buddy John's alma mater there. Yeah. So Saturday night we did host a uh, uh, private tour for. the alma mater of John Rickstraw. Yes, Kenyon the, College. Yep, Kenyon College. And he's the one that wrote the book uh, Return of the Richmond Vampire. Which, which features us. Which does feature us. Uh, kind of fun. And at, um, absolutely, uh, I, I loved it. I, I still need to read it. I'm sorry. I, I can <laughs> right through it. Once I, once, I, uh, once I picked it up and started reading it, I was totally hooked. And... Uh, yeah, it, it was a really good book. Uh, trying to see if we can get our hands on a few copies for us to actually, you know, kind of resell. And it'll uh, be the, the first uh, first book that we, uh, first fiction book that we would uh, sell. Because um, as of right now, we, we just sell um, the Haunts of Richmond, or Haunting Richmond, The Shadows of Shaco, which was written by Scott and Sandy Bergman, uh, the, founders. the founders of Haunts of Richmond. And uh, then we also have Policing the Paranormal, written by our friend Paul Hope, um, based upon all his experiences and those of his colleagues up at the uh, Virginia State Capitol Complex. And uh, please do not push that step over. So, but, yeah, so, uh, uh, yeah, you know, I have no idea where April is going, Patrick. That is an excellent question. And hello, Nico. Did you have behind the camera in Japan? Which has concerned if if we suddenly uh, if we suddenly do a face plant it's that you know is doing <laughs> so but anyway so we're here talking about haunted Nevada tonight yeah and it's not including area 51 and it's not including Las Vegas we're actually going to go to the rest of the state. we we deliberately excluded those two sites uh, area area 51 did, did we touch on that when we did the um, UFOs a little bit, but in any case, yeah, you know, everybody knows, you know, Las Vegas, super haunted. Everybody knows about Area 51, the super, alien. The, the, the super secret, super top secret um, uh, military site that doesn't exist. <laughs> Yet we have, you know, independent stay on it. Yeah, uh, so everybody knows about that, but there's a lot more to Nevada that, um, that nobody really knows about. So we're going to be covering some of that tonight. Um, now, I say a lot more, um, you know. Our, it's desert. So. It, it, there's a lot of desert out there, but we got uh, stories from a few locations across the state. Uh, quite a few of them, uh, our first set of stories are all going to come from Carson City. Yeah, which is the capital. To the capital, which we'll be actually, we're returning to Carson City, rather, because uh, uh, just a couple months ago we were talking about the uh, haunted executive mansion that's in Carson City. Business. Yeah, I see that. Okay. Yeah. Your tail is a great toy, buddy. <laughs> your, your your brother is somehow high as a kite and going after your tail. Anyways. <laughs> so it's something here. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. A, yeah, and you y'all can see it on camera if you if you look down here. So anyways. Um but yeah, so we got uh, quite a bit to talk about tonight. So yeah, uh oh. You're about to become battleground. I am about to become a battleground. Um, yeah, 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 so we're good to go. I, 
starting in Carson City, where we're returning to because this is capital, and we spoke about the governor's mansion uh, during our haunted executive mansion episode. Um, but not the only building to be quite haunted in this uh, small city. So we're going to start out at the Bliss Mansion. Uh, this is not far from the governor's mansion. Uh, right across Mountain Street from the governor's mansion is Bliss Mansion. The sprawling three-story, 8,500-square-foot mansion was completed in 1879 in the wake of the silver rush that had been a longtime landmark in Carson City. It was the largest and most elaborate structure in the city when it was first completed, including piping for gaslighting, and its first residents were millionaire Denane L. Bliss and his wife, Elizabeth. Bliss moved into the region uh, to engage in banking, but made his fortune by selling lumber to the thriving silver mine. His fortune grew as he invested in the growing railroads, and it took a turn for uh, at building fancy homes in Lake Tahoe and San Francisco. Everything's fine. <laughs> After building his fortune and a fair number of fancy homes for others, Liz decided that he wanted a stunning home of his own. So he knew exactly where he wanted it to go in Carson City, and there was a slight issue with the plan. The site that Liz selected for the mansion was inhabited at the time. That said, those residents were disinclined to argue uh, much after, as they were, of course, six feet under. Yeah, the land was a cemetery. We all know what happens when you move bodies, right? Don't. Don't. I mean, I suppose every once in a while, maybe, maybe there's a good reason for it, but... To build a house? No! That. What she said. Anyway. So, during the Silver Rush, of course, Carson City's most prosperous industries was actually funerals. Uh, the mortuaries and morgues were in high demand, and people fell hazards to the life of the frontier and in the mining industry in the late 1800s. All the bodies needed to go somewhere, and the burial site where Bliss Mansion now stands was one of those places. Even though the bodies were supposedly exhumed and relocated, people say that they still see confused spirits wandering the site looking for their missing burial plot. While one might be inclined to think that this family might have been tormented by these spirits, in truth, they seemed to live happily in the home for many years, and numerous owners uh, did the same after the forces passed away. Unlike many of our other homes of its vintage, it never fell into disrepair, it was never subdivided into apartments, and it did actually become an next upscale bed and breakfast for a time, but now it's a venue for arts and music during the summer months. Given the care that has been shown to the mansion since the beginning, it's of little surprise that some of those who loved it have come back to haunt their one-time home. The most notable specter of all is actually the original owner he named himself. He was unable or unwilling to let go of the grand home that he enjoyed for so many years, and he wandered the entire property, admiring the architecture or gazing out of the windows at the going on in the surrounding neighborhood. Uh, they, you want to watch the windows as you walk by because you may see curtains shifting about, uh, even though there's, of course, nobody in the building, or maybe keep an ear out for some lively music, which some believe to be an echo of one of Mrs. Bliss's delightful parties. Still, not all the spirits that linger on the property are benevolent, like the blisses. They are believed to be just two dozens, uh, excuse me, two of dozens of spirits who reside on the property, with many of them attributed back to that cemetery that was there before. Those spirits seem not to, uh, those spirits seem to not, there we go, only be lost, but some of them may be more than just a little angry as well. Some say that a young boy who lived there in the, in the 1980s died after falling down the stairs and that his fall was aided by an unhappy spirit. The family moved away shortly after the incident, leaving some to question the veracity, veracity. veracity of the tragic tale. While you may not be able to stay in the home any longer, you can catch a ghost tour during the Halloween season to hear more about this fascinating and beautifully haunted residence. And uh, and congratulations to our friend Alex. She had a baby. Yes, so apparently listening in with Clark, baby Clark. We're, we're training Clark early. Yes, we we uh, we very much approve of this. Yes, we do. So. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so 
are going to go to our next stop again in Percy City, just a half a mile to the south. And a couple blocks over, we can find the Ferris Mansion at the corner of West 3rd and Division Streets. The home dates back to 1863 when it was built by Gregory A. Sears. He only resided there for a few years before selling the home to George Washington Gale Ferris Sr. in 1868. Ferris Sr. was a rancher and horticulturist who ran a landscaping business and planted many trees around Carson City, including several on the grounds of the new state capital. He lived in his new home with his wife and their two children, Mary and George Jr. If the name George Ferris Jr. sounds familiar, it's because he was the inventor of the Ferris wheel, which premiered at the World Columbian Exhibition in Chicago in 1893. Now, in September of 1880, Mary was set to marry the love of her life, and she could think of no better place to do so than at the beautiful home of her parents. Unfortunately, there was a bit of a disturbance on the magical day as numerous guests approached George Sr. to ask him if there was to be a second wedding on his daughter's magical day. Many of them had seen a second woman in a wedding dress wandering the property, causing quite the stir. While George Sr. assured each of the guests that there was only one bride and one wedding, many of them departed at the end of the festivities knowing what they had seen. Soon after, the Ferris family found that prior to Mary's wedding, there had been plans for one other wedding at the home before they moved in there. Unfortunately, this bride did not have the fairy tale wig fairy tale wedding she had hoped for as she was left standing at the altar by her groom to be. Stories say that the bride's spirit never appeared at the mansion before Mary's wedding day, but once she was awakened, she never left. She still appears to visitors of the mansion, even though it has been long since converted into office space. The bride may not be alone in haunting the Ferris mansion. While George Jr. had left Nevada many years before his passing in 1896, he may have been drawn back to his childhood home in the afterlife. George Ferris Jr. had fondness for strongly scented aftershave, and to this day, guests to the mansion will smell, uh, smell the jarring fragrance, an unmistakable hallmark of George Jr.'s lingering presence. If you do have business to attend to in one of the offices residing in the mansion today, be prepared to feel watched. Guests commonly report the sensation of being followed at every step through the mansion. Whether it is the bride, George Jr., or another entity altogether is up for debate, but it still doesn't hurt to steal yourself before a visit to this historic structure. Sorry, my brain. How's that going? So far, I no, don't need to intercede. Okay. Am I continuing to read, or are you? Okay. We're having a tussle with our boys right now. <laughs> <laughs> Aw, apparently Clark's already a big Haunt fan. Yay! <laughs> Thank you, Adam. I don't have any baby gear. I'm sorry. Introduce. <laughs> <laughs> Got to introduce them to the oh, that is fun and spooky early. Yes. Yes, yes you yes, do. <laughs> Okay, so um, still in Carson City, we're going to move a couple blocks over and we'll arrive at Carson Street, one of the main drags through the center of Carson City. While the state government buildings on the east side of Carson Street command much of the attention, just across the way are a number of historic storefronts, including the St. Charles Hotel. The hotel was originally built in 1862 as two separate buildings. The north three-story building opened as the St. Charles Hotel, and the South two-story building opened as the Mueller Hotel. The St. Charles was advertised as the most desirable and commodious first-class house in Carson, and the pleasantest resort in Carson and where everything kept by the bar is of the best quality, a reputation it did well to live up to by all accounts. It became a major stagecoach stop for Carson City and held the offices of the Pioneer Stage Company. It was also a popular hangout for state lawmakers when the legislature was in session. Mark Twain, who lived in Carson City when the hotel was built, was most likely a patron of the bar on the ground floor. The good times didn't last, though. The days of the Comstock declined, and other hotels like the Arlington Hotel and the nearby Ormsby House eclipsed the St. Charles in popularity. 
1890, the St. Charles was renamed the Briggs Hotel, and in 1894, the Briggs and Mueller Hotels were combined to form the Briggs House. In 1910, it was renamed again, this time to the Golden West Hotel. Unfortunately, it had also denigrated into little more than a slop house. The restaurant on the ground floor would pay local boys 25 cents a head to bring in jackrabbits to be served for dinner that night. Yeah. The hotel would see many more changes over the next half century. It changed names several more times. It would play host to a coffee shop and cocktail bar. The stagecoach office was replaced with a Greyhound bus depot. By the 1980s, the paint was peeling off the walls, and it served as a low-rent flop house. The historic building was on its last legs. Fortunately, in 1993, local businessman Bob McFadden bought the hotel and embarked on a thorough renovation. The exterior received a facelift, restoring much of its historic charm. The interior was fixed up to appeal to tourists again. The dive bar was replaced with an upscale eatery. Perhaps most importantly of all, the St. Charles was, uh, St. Charles name was resurrected. Very appropriate considering that it very much returned to its mid to late 1800s roots. That said, while the building had received a much needed restoration, the businesses there struggled. Several restaurants opened and failed on the ground floor. So many, in fact, that people had joked that the space was cursed. Bob McFadden would ultimately sell the building to Jenny and Mark Lopitico in October 2004. Lopiticos held on to the hotel for a few years without making many changes, trying to find just the right tenant to put in the ground floor restaurant space. Finally, in 2007, they announced that the Firkin and Fox Pub would open in the hotel. After six months of construction and renovations, the Firkin and Fox opened in January of 2008 to huge success. It in turn sparked a rebirth across downtown Carson City. Today, the St. Charles Hotel stands as the second oldest hotel in the state, but the oldest one that has been in continuous operation as a hostelery. Given the checkered past of highs and lows that the St. Charles Hotel has experienced, there's little surprise that some people from this highly varied cast of characters have returned to haunt this historic location. Starting back in the Comstock days, as the silver mines began to play out, so did the novelty of the St. Charles Hotel. In 1874, the Daily Appeal reported that a man killed himself inside the hotel by taking a fatal dose of strychnine. Believe it or not, strychnine was once available in pill form to treat a variety of ailments, but there was a very fine line between medicinal use and fatal dose. Symptoms of strychnine exposure include painful muscle spasms, agitation, difficulty breathing, and ultimately respiratory failure and death. Not a peaceful way to go. Hotel visitors report hearing and seeing evidence of the tortured soul still roaming the halls to this day. Additional reports include the apparition of a heavyweight boxing contender, Larry Duncan, who boxed under the name Fighting Irish Pat Duncan in the 1970s. After his boxing career was over, he was abandoned by his family. Duncan lived at the hotel for the rest of his years and is said to have died in his room. Many witnesses claim to have seen his troubled spirit wandering the hotel. On the more sinister side is a spirit that has been called Mean Phil. Bill's name came in from an EVP session done by a paranormal team, and the mean part came from his abundant disdain for women. On the physical side of things, he has been blamed for pulling the hair of female visitors to the location. A pair of children seem to linger around the location as well, though it's uncertain if they are related to one one another or not. It's assumed that they lived there with their families at the hotel during one of its less savory eras. The boy can be heard calling for his mother, but any further information about him remains elusive. A little girl has been a bit more interactive and has indicated that she lived at the hotel with her parents and brother. Why their spirits were stuck here is unknown, but we hope that their presence at the St. Charles is not entirely uncomfortable for them. Perhaps the children can find some pleasant company with our final spirit, a spectral cat. All the reports concerning the cat involve it only being heard and not seen. That said, you know how much we love our furry friends. You got to go check on this. I am. <laughs> Somebody's into something they shouldn't be. Okay. We can hear it. <laughs> All right. So we're going to pop over to the Nevada State Museum in the city. Uh, it's about a half mile up the road, and uh, today the museum resides in a structure that was 
are still in 
It continues to thrive today as visitors come to immerse themselves in the historic atmosphere, including the many hauntings. Now, I will say this place, the this, this town, the architecture is beautiful. I mean, it's packed with like Victorian era architecture. Um, really, you know, kind of. It seems out of place. Yeah. But um, it's it's quite the quite the eye eyeful, if you will. Quite the quite a um, comfort for on the eye. It's easy on the eye. It's not what you expect in the middle of a desert state. No, no, <laughs> it's not. So, yeah, and many communities like it dried up and there have been become kind of a stereotypical ghost town, yeah. but not Virginia City. So, in Virginia City, we will start in one of our favorite kinds of places, the local cemetery. Because why not? Yeah, so not all is restful at the Virginia City Cemetery. All kinds of strange paranormal things have been reported here, from a glowing tombstone that's reported to be as bright as the sun to a tombstone that just won't stay put. The moving tombstone easily weighs hundreds of pounds, and it would take several burly individuals to shift it even the slightest. Still, it's abundantly clear when the tombstone moves, as you can see from the path that it has traveled. Why it moves is just as mysterious as to how, but the visual evidence is hard to dispute. The bizarre activity of the cemetery isn't limited to the tombstones. There is also a strange fire in the cemetery that has been seen for years. People say it appears to look like a regular campfire, but when you get closer to it, there's no fire and no sign of anyone nearby. Some people, including some police officers, have claimed to see shadows moving around the fire from a distance, including those of horses near the fire. The spectral horses are often accompanied by a distinctive whinny and the sounds of hooves gently stomping on the ground. A more fearsome creature has been reported by the cemetery gates, a large white dog with glowing red eyes. Its appearance is often accompanied by the smell of sulfur and a menacing smoke. Speaking for myself... That's not a dog you want to get near. Yeah, I don't think I would dare get close enough to this dog with glowing red eyes to see exactly how it smells. Patrick, I'll leave that up to you. Moving um, on. Yeah, hellhounds. <laughs> there's, there's some hellhound things here going on. So. That, right. Yeah, that's not the only one, though. Yeah. Um, so this is going to be a bunch of small vignettes, just to be all aware. Uh, so now the Fair, Silver Terrace Cemetery in Virginia City uh, is another one with a spooky story. It was started in the 1800s and is very much worth a visit to check out the beautiful architecture that surrounds this eternal resting spot. Glowing orbs are amongst the most commonly seen phenomenon at the cemetery, but there's also an apparition that lingers here of the less friendly sort. Residents of Virginia City say that the ghost of a former cemetery groundskeeper haunts the ground. He's not a spirit you want to cross, and he's not welcoming as the beautiful cemetery landscaping that he resides on. It's speculated that his negative demeanor may be due to the disrespectful activity that has plagued the cemetery in recent years. Acts of vandalism at the Silver Terrace Cemetery have been disturbingly frequent. While there are members of the living that do seek to care for the cemetery grounds and repair any damage that takes place, it might be that the groundskeeper's spirit is there to maintain an eternal vigil over this final resting place. Now let's move on to other parts of town, including the Gold Hills Hotel. Uh, it's widely known as one of the oldest hotels in Nevada, and it's a popular location for weddings and events. It's not lacking in historic charm. However, there's a lot more to this place than meets the eye. During the 1860s, Gold Hill was just another mining town that was swept up by the craze of the gold run. Boasting several mines beneath the city itself, there was one mine in particular that became victim to one of the worst mining accidents in Nevada's history. A fire broke out in the Yellow Jacket Mine, which ran right underneath the hotel in 1859. It killed dozens of miners. Now, it said the souls of those miners now haunt the hotel. One of the creepiest spots around the hotel is the old miners' cabin situated near the back of the property. Considering the cabin is located right next to the mine shaft, which contains the unretrieved bodies from the horrible accident, it's no wonder why there's some paranormal activity built here. Now, within the hotel itself, many of the rooms are well known as paranormal hotspots. Both Rosie's room and William's room have housed guests that have witnessed moving items, ending doors, and even some apparitions. People who have entered William's room have observed a strong aroma of tobacco, and if somebody has 
as if somebody has just been smoking a cigar in the room. Williams believed to be one of the miners that was lost in the fire. As for Rosie, her presence is blamed as both a housekeeper and a lady of the night. Either way, her attachment to the hotel didn't end with her last breath. She is very popular, or particular to where things are situated in her room. So take a second look around the room before you panic if a certain possession of yours isn't there when you last left it. The great room is also reportedly haunted. Here, the living and the dead have mingled for generations, both quenching their thirst with a beverage from the nearby bar. And after all, if the bar was good enough for Mark Twain, it's certainly good enough for the individuals from both sides of the Mortal Coil. And if you like to check out the spirit inside the hotel yourself, you can try spending a night or two in one of their rooms. You can sign up for one of their ghost tours that they hold once a month on Thursday. Actually, I looked it up. They hold those tours at in the like in the winter season. It seems to be once a month. But when things start to warm up out there, it seems to hold at least two or three times a month. Cool. So yeah, go check it out. Yeah. Now, of course. We are going to talk about the mind that uh, had the fire. Yes, we're going to get a little dive a little deeper into the subject of that yellow jacket mine. It stands as a spooky location in its own right, after all. The yellow jacket mine is the focal point of what might be Nevada's most haunted hike. The yellow jacket mine disaster was probably the worst mining accident in Nevada history. During the morning hours of April 7, 1869, fire broke out and spread at the 800-foot level. That's deep. Now, as the day crew was coming to work and descending into the mine, burning timbers collapsed and poisonous air flooded into the mine. Um, Virginia City and Gold Hill firefighters responded. However, the poor water pressure prevented firefighters from extinguishing the blaze. Timbering in the tunnel collapsed, and the fire continued to burn for an additional three weeks. Thirty-nine miners died. However, only 34 bodies were recovered. Speculation abounds that several single miners could have also perished in the fire with their identities still unknown today. Visitors to the mine have reported seeing glowing blue and white orbs around the entrance of the main shaft, thus suggesting that perhaps the spirits of the five unrecovered miners are still there. There is an abundance of quartz and magnetite in the area, and some studies into the paranormal suggest that these two minerals are closely related to incidences of paranormal activity. One of the popular theories about quartz and magnetite is that when a spirit manifests itself, it alters the magnetic field around the minerals. Another theory is that a spirit can draw an energy from a high magnetic field using the energy to manifest itself. Thus, the theory that certain minerals, such as quartz and magnetite, can cause some type of residual haunting. Since the accident, the upper shaft of the yellow jacket mine has since been safely fenced to prevent accidents. While most of the mine is closed, the few people who have ventured into the more accessible tunnels were frightened by the sounds of miners' cries, sending them running from the mine. All that remains of the mine is the wooden incline chute and head frame. At the base of the hill is the previously noted miner's cabin, which is today part of the Gold Hill Hotel. The hike from the hotel to the mine is where the majority of paranormal activity has been seen and recorded. Apparitions of miners wearing work gear walking around outside after dark, particularly around the anniversary of the disaster, are common. And we are still not done with Virginia City. I got two cities you can go to pretty close and get a lot of ghosty stuff in. So now we're going to move over to the Silver Fade Hotel. When you spend a night at the hotel, it says that people hear huge fights somewhere in the hotel. Many people complain about the commotion the next morning, but there's inevitably no real fight to have been had, at least not amongst the living. Of the spirits that are sighted around the hotel, there is a ghost of a little girl, probably about seven or eight years old, in a pretty dress. Life in the mining communities can be harsh and unforgiving, and many think that the little girl is a victim of a tragic accident on the street in front of the hotel. Her spirit has returned to the last comfortable place she knew. Inside the Silver Queen. On the more ominous side is the cowboy in black. He's often seen just outside the Silver Queen, and his appearance is certainly eye catching. He's very reminiscent of the classic villain seen in Western movies and TV shows in over the last 60 plus years. 
Most of the tourists think he's a period actor wandering through town to add to the historic atmosphere, and they're horrified to see him wander into traffic on Main Street. When they expect him to be run down by incoming traffic, they're even more shaken to see him vanish into thin air. Well, his identity seems to be stated to be an eternal mystery. He reminds a well-known spirit picture in the city itself. Uh, Elf asked a good question. If you had to rank these places by how much you want to visit and or investigate them, what are your top choices? I mean, I, I, I definitely want to dive into Car- Carson City. Yeah, I do too. Um, and uh, in Carson City, I think specifically the places I would love to visit would be, I, I'd like to visit the, the St. Charles Hotel. Um, the other one I'd like to visit actually um, was from the previous episode. I'm hoping, I would like to think they do tours of the Executive Mansion. Yeah. I'd love to see the Executive Mansion there. Um, look, be- pictures are beautiful and have some spooky stories. Um, I'm assuming I couldn't do an investigation of the Executive yeah. Mansion, but if I had the opportunity to investigate at St. Charles, I would do that. And then also... I'd like to go to the brew house. The brew house? Oh, yeah. there's the Brewery Arts Center? Yeah. Yeah, no, that'd be cool. Because I'm a theater person. Ah, uh, yes, yes. <laughs> and, well, I mean... I want to go play. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, I mean, it seems like a, seems like a fun place, yeah. just in general. And then uh, Virginia City, oh, I, I'd love to get to the, the Gold Hill Hotel. Yeah. So, yeah. All kinds I'd of be happy in Rosie's room. I don't, I'm not a fan of cigar smoke, so I don't want to be very content Nico who's trying to do something, I don't know, fall asleep. Probably. Uh, anyways. And I have an angry ball for over here. So, uh, but now uh, <clears throat> we're still not done. But wait, there's more. Uh, we are done. I will say we're done in Virginia City. Yep. So that was our last Virginia City story. Uh, but moving on from there, we are going to move travel to a location whose imagery is typical when people think of the Old West. A ghost in the middle of the desert, long since abandoned to the elements. What's left of the town of Rhyolite stands just to the east of Death Valley National Park. Seeing what's left, it's hard to imagine that this was once the home of over 10,000 people. The residents of Rhyolite were tough people. The landscape was unforgiving and natural resources were scarce. Yet in 1905, really not that long ago in the grand scheme of things, a gold rush drew people to the area to work the Montgomery Shoeshine Mine. Industrialist Charles Schwab invested heavily in the community, bringing piped water, electricity, and a railroad to the desert outpost. Now, if his name sounds familiar, this is the same Charles Schwab that built the Hotel Bethlehem that we featured on our Christmas hauntings episode in December of 2021. So he's got more than one haunted location to his name. Uh, even though he doesn't necessarily haunt them himself. That said, Schwab's investment in Rhyolite opened the floodgates, and a school, a hospital, an opera house, a newspaper, and a stock exchange soon followed. Given its current state, it's obvious that Rhyolite's fortunes didn't last. The mine's profitability crashed in 1910, and it was shuttered in 1911. By 1920, Rhyolite had effectively been abandoned. The ruins became a tourist attraction and a setting for motion pictures. Buildings crumbled or were salvaged for uh, buildings in other communities. What's left of Rhyolite is now maintained by the Bureau of Land Management and is arguably, uh, excuse me, and arguably its resident spirits. There are many tales about the ghosts lurking in Rhyolite from its bygone mining days. There's the spirit of a grimy miner that has been deemed the brown man. Legend says that he is the lingering spirit of a man who was lethally cheated out of his hard-won fortune. He entered Rhyolite with a satchel full of large gold nuggets to be tested and weighed. Unfortunately for him, he left town in a casket. It's said that he was poisoned by the town barber in an attempt to steal the gold. While the miner's body has left town, his spirit can still be seen wandering ruins as a brown shadow wearing a big, floppy hat. The brown man isn't the only gold-mining ghost in town. Some people have claimed to see the ancient-looking old man, uh, see an ancient-looking old man leading a mule through town. The mule is loaded down with gold-mining equipment. Any attempts to get a closer look at this duo is met with their abrupt appearance. 
What remains of Rye Lake is worth a visit if you're in the area. It speaks to a chapter of history that is hard to fathom for many of us and our modern creature comforts. And maybe, if you're lucky, you might catch a glimpse of one of the town's more permanent residents. <laughs> All right, so now we're going to go over to Incline Village. Uh, this is the northern shore of Lake Tahoe where it meets the California border. And uh, there are quite a few ski resorts, um, ski resort towns, excuse me, surrounding Lake Tahoe. Incline Village is a gorgeous community that feels, world, feels worlds apart from the desert landscapes that dominate much of Nevada. On the outskirts of town, just to the south of the village, you'll find a stunning architectural landmark known as the Thunderbird Lodge. Construction of the lodge began in 1836 by George Whittle, Jr. At the time, Whittle owned 20 miles of Lake Tahoe shoreline and 40,000 acres. He first considered turning the property into a hotel casino slash resort uh, for skiing and summer properties. However, his love of privacy and his exotic animal collections led him to nick those plans. His beautiful home is marked by its remarkable stone masonry, ironwork, and woodwork. It also features a variety of unique outbuildings, including a card house, a caretaker's cottage, the cook butler's house, an elephant barn, and the admiral's house, the boat house, and oh yeah, the gate house. Now, Mr. Whittle largely kept his plant to his plans until his passing in 1969. At that time, much of the property was purchased by investor Jack Dreyfus. He later sold much of the land to the Forest Service and Nevada State Parks, and in the late 1990s, most of the remaining buildings changed hands again, but most of the untouched landscape going to the Forest Service. Lost in the exchange was the Thunderbird Lodge. The Forest Service didn't want it, and the structure was at risk. A nonprofit organization, the Thunderbird Lodge Preservation Society, was formed to preserve the building for future generations. The lodge was subsequently subsequently listed on the National Register of Historic Places in 2000. It has since been made available for tours, special events, and rentals, all with an eye on maintaining and sharing this beautiful and historic property and the surrounding landscape. Hiding just below the beautiful veneers of the special historic, historical stories of this property are several spooky tales that speak to a creepy and grim event within the lodge's past. There's a lingering spirit of a workman who died while working on the construction of a swimming pool in the 1940s. He had the misfortune of falling from the ladder he was working on and apparently waking up on the other side of the veil. It's unclear if he was aware of exactly what happened as he still seems to be going about his business in various locations across the property. While most would consider haunting your workplace a miserable purgatory, those are, there are worse places to be stuck than the beautiful Hunterford Lodge. Nico, do you have to play with the crinkle toy now? Yes, I have to get high, Daddy. If you hear something crinkly. He's getting high. Sorry about that. <laughs> Along the same lines, the ghost of the lodge, lodge's chef seems to linger as well. Jimmy Lee worked in the lodge in the early 1950s, at least until his career was brought to an abrupt and terrifying end. One day, while taking kitchen scraps to the incinerator, Jimmy had an unfortunate run-in with one of the area's resident black bears in 1954. Result, bear one, Jimmy zero. Still, Jimmy seems to linger around the lodge. His spirit has been seen in the area on numerous, numerous occasions. While he doesn't particularly seem distressed, we like to think that maybe he's still pondering what to prepare for his next meal. Perhaps bears are tired? Anybody? On a completely tangent note, we watched Cocaine Bear yesterday. We did. I have no regrets. No. It was hilarious. It was ridiculous. It was perfect. It is hilariously grim. Yeah. Some, I mean, it, it, Don't expect a masterpiece. It is there for its ridiculousness. It's exactly what you should expect it to be. So. Yeah. Anyway. Sometimes you just need that. Also, I've noticed. The uh, work on the work front is the butler's cottage is quite haunted as well. While it has since been turned into a guest house, individuals who stay there have reported seeing shimmering apparitions and hearing disembodied whispers, perhaps the echoes of the builders' building's working past. 
One more worker-related tale. This is the tale of the not-so-spirited sort, but still kind of interesting. After Jack Dreyfus purchased the estate, the first thing he found when arriving there was the caretaker, Ode Fond, dead in front of the kitchen sink. Jack's first call from his new home would be to the local authorities to see Ode's body. When Ode was not had not been reported amongst the spirits in the lodge, he did lead a rather interesting life. In World War II era, he was living in his native Norway. Here, he participated in Norwegian resistance against the occupying Nazis. He would dress in all white, ski across the backcountry, sniping the German synthesis that were working on the heavy water facility that was aiding the German effort in building a nuclear weapon. Survived the war, eventually moved to Lake Tahoe to teach athletes how to ski and shoot for the 1960 Winter Olympics biathlon. After training, uh, the training responsibilities were complete. He snuck around the area and started looking after the Wedgels and State. His backstory, along with his athletic training efforts, led Sloan to become a rather famous and popular fixture in the Tahoe area. One more noted spirit is friends. People have reported seeing Whittle's beloved confidant, Mistress May Mulligan, around the Thunderbird Lodge. Mulligan was a tragically killed in a car accident in Crystal Bay, driving one of Whittle's vehicles. This isn't the only place she is seen, however, she, which of course brings us to our next location. Crystal Bay. So, we need to preface this next story by saying that the location was actually just demolished this past year. So, yeah, sorry. So, for 76 years, though, the Tahoe Biltmore stood as a cozy gambling outpost in the town of Crystal Bay overlooking Lake Tahoe. It also became well associated with the paranormal in the last couple decades of its, of its existence. Thought to be the home of numerous, numerous spirits, including the previously mentioned May Mulhagen, the Tahoe Biltmore drew paranormal enthusiasts from miles around to participate in paranormal investigations and other spooky events for years. Along with random doors opening and closing, voices whispering, <clears throat> uh, voices whispering nearby, and knocking sounds, the Tahoe Biltmore's most famous resident, Ghost Mary, was a regular fixture at the establishment. The leading theory behind Mary's presence is that she was a showgirl in the 1960s-era Aspen Cabaret that regularly performed at Tahoe Biltmore. She wears an outfit consistent with being a member of the cabaret, but she has the frightening distinction of having no discernible facial features. With the Tahoe Biltmore now gone, it's unclear what might become of Mary and her spirited acquaintances. Were their ties strictly to the Tahoe Biltmore, or might their attachments go a little deeper to the land that the Tahoe Biltmore once stood upon? In a few years' time, we might be able to answer that question as a new establishment is set to arise on the site. The Waldorf Astoria Lake Tahoe is currently in development and is tentatively scheduled to open its doors in 2027. For our part, we hope that the first guests to check in are the spirits who resided on this site first. Just a couple more quick stops for us this evening. Um, this one, I, I'm particularly fond of this one. You, you probably didn't make the connection, but I, it jumped out at me. So, yeah. Anyways, uh, next we move to the tiny community of Good Springs, just a little to the southwest of Las Vegas. Now, fun fact, if you're a video gaming fan, the Good Springs name might sound familiar. That's because it's where your character wakes up to start the renowned or reviled game, depending on your take, Fallout New Vegas. Okay. Yeah. As a matter of fact, our next stop was used for the in-game model of the Prospector Saloon, including the shape of the building, the location of the jukebox and bar, and the stylings of details such as the front porch, ceiling, and mirrors. Our real-world location is known as the Pioneer Saloon. And if you're wondering about how they feel about the video game, they have a framed copy of it on the wall in the saloon. That said, built in 1913, the Pioneer Saloon is one of the oldest continuously operating businesses in Nevada. It has a classic Old West feel to it, and the weight of history clings to the establishment, along with some spirits. The most famous spirit seems to be that of Carol Lombard, 
a renowned actress of the 1930s and early 1940s, who tragically lost her life in a plane crash on nearby Mount Pat, uh, Patosi in 1942. It took days for the wreckage to be found, and all the while her distraught husband, Clark Gable, sat at the bar in the Pioneer Saloon drinking himself into oblivion. Evidence of Gable's stay is still evident on the bar as burn marks from his mishandled cigarettes still show on the bar top. It's believed that Carol's spirit lingers at the Pioneer Saloon in an attempt to cover her bereaved, comfort her bereaved husband. On the more menacing side, we have the spirit of Paul Kosky. Kosky was a massive man who loved to boast as much as he loved to drink. He liked to claim that he could put down any two men at the same time in a fight. It states with habit, it was two bullets to Kosky's side that put him in the ground after he was caught cheating in a game of cards at the Pioneer Saloon. His physical presence wasn't much missed, as is evidenced by the framed copy of the coroner's report for Kosky that hangs on the saloon's wall. Kosky's spirit doesn't seem to be quite finished with the Pioneer Saloon, though, he is sometimes seen lurking in darkened corners of the saloon, glaring at the present-day customers, blood pouring from the bullet, hole, bullet holes in his side. The last spirit of the Pioneer Saloon that we will note is that of an aged prospector, who will sometimes be seen lingering at the end of the bar in the wee hours of the morning. The staff say that the prospector provides a protective feel over the establishment, as if he is there just to make sure that things don't get out of hand. All right, we're going to pop over to Boulder City, uh, El Dorado Valley, and the Pet Cemetery. This is our final story for the evening, and, well, we find a little at unauthorized pet cemetery that history goes back over 60 years. The origin of the El Dorado Valley Pet Cemetery starts with Boulder City veterinarian in the 1950s. Marwood A. Dowd and Emery Lockett founded the cemetery to address the unfilled need in the community. But unfortunately, they chose a public lot of land that was maintained by the Bureau of Land Management. The Bureau quickly told the men to discontinue their operation. And while they did so, individuals continued to use the land for the burials independently. In recent years, the cemetery has since stopped limiting access to the site, so that doesn't stop people from exploring this odd little memorial site in the Nevada desert. It also doesn't stop people from taking and spreading rumors about the site. The wildest of these rumors say that the grounds have been used for burying more than just the beloved pets. Stories of mob burials at the cemetery have been around for decades. Along with the ghostly tales that have earned El Dorado Pet Cemetery the reputation as the most haunted pet cemetery in the world. There are stories about vengeful spirits of mob victims, but one of the most fascinating is the story about a murderous dog creature. People claim that this creature is the remains of a dog that was put down by a mobster. The mobster had the dog interred at the illegal cemetery where its remains were caught up in a flash flood. Rather than fading away into obscurity, the dog spirit returned, furious at the murderous human who took its life and subsequently laid it to rest in an unstable ground. They are said to circle the cemetery at night looking for the remains of mobsters who are also unceremoniously discarded at the site. On a slightly less grim note, there is also a spirit of a white cat that has been seen at the cemetery. This cat is friendly enough, but it also has a discerning taste in its company it keeps. If the cat finds you worthy, it may accompany you for your trek through the cemetery as you explore and pay your respects. For the curious amongst you, the cemetery is hard to find and not on any official map. So do be careful and respectful if you ever find yourself treading on this site that is the final resting place of so many beloved pets. Always be respectful. Yes. Always. Ah. Oh, we, got up. we do. Two weeks from now, Haunted England. Followed by Haunted Norway the week after, because again, we're going to be slightly off due to Chris and I being out of the country. So, I do already have um, the event listed for Haunted England. It's already up on the Facebook page. You can go check that out, and I'm hoping to have, hopefully, get, get, Norway, up get Norway up this week. Sometime this week. 
But anyways, yeah, those are our next couple episodes that we have coming up. And, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so we got, uh, oh, words are starting to fail me. And they can't because we've got an interview coming up in a half an hour. Yeah, yeah, we've got a late night interview tonight. Oh, fun stuff there. But, um, so yeah, we, um, anyways, next couple of weeks, um, kind of fairly normal for us, so to speak. We're doing tours. Tours are running Thursday through Saturday. Um, so uh, you can come check out one of those. That's going to be our schedule all the way until... Memorial Day week, at which point we start full-time. Yep, Memorial Day, uh, that'll mark starting some nights a week. Uh, there are just a couple of stray nights here or there in the summer months where we will not be operating or we've already been booked out for a private event type deal. But uh, otherwise, yeah, private our public tours seven nights a week during the summer months. So... Uh, lots and lots and lots of opportunities for you to come and catch up with us. Uh, I will say, so yeah, um, if you were uh, hoping for Story of Las Vegas tonight, obviously we put it right in the title that there would not be Las Vegas, but we will certainly certainly come back and visit there on another occasion. And I personally think that we probably have enough uh, material to uh, dive in and maybe do a Haunted Nevada Part 2. Or, or who knows, maybe we'll put those stories up and kind of throw them into like a haunted hotel type thing or something like that. But in any case, definitely not the last that you've heard of Nevada. Uh, so we got a lot going on. And I will say um, in two weeks, if you're hoping for tales for London, no, you're going to be kind of out of luck. We are not going to be talking about London. We'll do London another time because we've done a lot of London things already. We did a, we did that whole episode that was like transportation, haunted London transportation. We were able to do an entire episode on that. So many haunted And we covered the Tower of London as well. Yes, that's right. We did do uh, Tower of London. That was on the Tower. Oh, Gosh, yeah. that's been, what, like almost three years ago now? Yeah. Maybe more than three years ago now that, that we did that one. First. That was an early edition. Yeah. So you can all go back and you can find that. Um, it's on the Facebook page somewhere and uh, also on YouTube. So, yeah. But, yeah, uh, so London will not be featured in Haunted England because there's a lot more to England than just London and so many spooky things to talk about. So, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, see. <laughs> it's, our hard. it's our hard. It's been a very long day and it's not over yet. <laughs> and Alex looking up. So, uh, looking forward to joining on tour in person soon. We'll look forward to it, Alex. Uh, give us, make sure uh, give us a heads up because uh, uh, we we personally don't make it to every single tour um, in person. We have an amazing uh, amazing staff of guides that uh, will step in and help us with keeping yeah, things rolling because there's no way that just the two of us could do everything that we do if we did not have them. So we are, they are internally thankful to our uh, our amazing cast of guides that we have. So For us are our cast leaders. Yes. And yes. They, will, they will be taking care of the babies while we're gone. Yes. Yes. So, yeah, lots of, uh, lots of spooky locales in England. So looking forward to talking about that in two weeks. Looking forward to talking about Haunted Norway in three weeks. Again, remember, those will be back-to-back weeks. And then we are going to be off for, for, off for well, it'll be three weeks after that for our next episode. So, yeah. We got a, got, I got a lot of editing to do in the next couple of weeks. That's okay. Get that done. Um, and, uh, again, you can come join us on a tour sometime. And surprisingly, that's kind of all we got going on for the next couple of weeks, just yeah. kind of some, some tours. Yeah. Good stuff. In any case, we're always happy to hear from you uh, anytime. Just drop us a note. Uh, love, to, love to chat if you have any follow-up questions. You know, send us a note or drop them in the chat here on the um, on the live stream. Or uh, even if even if you do it after we go off the air, still see the comments and stuff like that. So happy to look at that. And uh, our YouTube shop is slowly growing. Yes. Um, slowly. Etsy shop, I should say. Beth, Beth has added. I've been adding jewelry to it. Um, so it's now shirts and jewelry, uh, and slowly I'm adding more and more pieces as I count my inventory. Yep. <laughs> and uh, the our our Etsy shop is um, it's not haunts of Richmond. It is Richmond haunts. So if you want to go look for it, the shop name is Richmond haunts. But yeah. So with that. I think we're going to go ahead. We will uh, go ahead and uh, sign, off, sign off for this evening. But thank you all very much for joining us and with chatting us, chatting with us here. 
uh, enjoyed that very much. Uh, always a pleasure. And uh, we will, uh, at the very least, hopefully uh, see you back here again in two weeks' time. Yep. So, good night, all. Have a good night. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.